Welcome to the Griffith in Asia podcast. Today we have our Professor Yin Ho uh, to give us a talk on Nehru and uh, India's foreign policy. As we all know, Yin, Yin's research interests include the history of international thought and Indian foreign policy. Uh, he's just got a new book out, uh, which is titled Radicals and Reactionaries in 20th Century International Thought by Pelgrim. Uh, Ian is also the editor of uh, the Journal of uh, Asian Politics and Policy. No, I'm not the editor. I'm just on the editorial board. Editorial board, okay. <laughs> and also the Australian Journal of International Affairs. Uh, he's currently in the ARC Discovery Project uh, titled After Nehru, the Evolution of Indian International Thought, 1964 to 2014. So uh, I can you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for coming. I wanted to start, as I think these papers should do, with a poem. Um, the poem's called Strength. Fate is not a master to be obeyed. I am a man who relishes a challenge. Not satisfied with others' reflected glory, I am myself a burning lantern. No reliance on other dazzling lights. My own light is enough for me. To cut through the vortex of darkness, the bright lotus gives me energy. I have no interest in the fog of obfuscation. I am open and frank. That's from Narendra Modi's latest collection of poems, A Journey. Modi's a really quite extraordinary figure. Extraordinary in many ways, extraordinary in, in the terms of delivering the political success that he delivered last year to the BJP and to himself. But extraordinary also in the attention that he pays to image management, to public relations, to the building of his own image and the management of his own image, but also to the management of the image of India. And that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit today. Modi came through, came from quite humble origins and really made his name within an Indian organization called the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, the RSS, which is a kind of quasi-paramilitary uh, movement in the Hindu nationalist, broader Hindu nationalist movement. He joined them very early in his, in his life um, and he committed himself to the RSS around the age of 20 or so, a little bit older or younger, we're not quite sure because some of the, early, the details of Modi's early life are a little unclear. And from that point onwards he became something of a, well, euphemistically we might call him a community organiser. He likes um, Barack Obama, he's very interested in Barack Obama, and he likes to see parallels between himself and Barack Obama, so we're calling him a community organiser is one way of putting it. He's very, very conscious about his own personal image, to the point of being, as some people have accused him, of being acutely narcissistic, actually. You see here one of the images that he's used for his website and from other, for other publications, and I'll just show you some other pictures before I get into the paper, just to give you a flavour of, of him, of his image management, and also his stage management of events. Here he is after the election victory, he's actually on, um, uh, giving a speech at, on the Red Fort in Delhi. See the huge crowd there on either side as he's addressing them. Well, you, you get a sense of the, the headdress, he's always got an extraordinary headdress when he's giving one of these kinds of um, speeches, but you also, you don't quite get a sense of the energy of his oratory. Uh, some of you may have seen him give talks in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, and you will have got a sense from, from that. But this picture doesn't really give that sense yet of that energy of his oratory. The stage management is important. The image management is important. It's important partly because his background is not necessarily one that, that people outside of India sympathise with. Here he is with some of his friends from the RSS. Here he's standing on the right-hand side there 
in one of his trademark half-sleeve curtas. And on the left-hand side, there are some of the members of the RSS in their uniform, the, kind of the, the quasi-military hats, the khaki shorts, and the white shirts of the RSS. And they drill uh, together in these uniforms, the RSS, and have done since it was founded back in the interwar period, and was founded very much along kind of paramilitary lines of uh, fascist movements of that time. The, the uniform is quite self-consciously fascist. Uh, the, the salute is quite self-consciously fascist, uh, and so on. So this is an organisation that is unpalatable in the West and amongst many people in India as well. Uh, and, but Modi's association with this group is extremely close and has been, as I say, since he was a boy. So his image management is, um, is important to deal with this problem, this potential problem of how he comes across to, to Western audiences. And he learned this partly through just simply working with the organisation, doing jobs for them uh, as an organiser, but also especially during the period of the uh, emergency. In 1975, Indira Gandhi suspended some of the constitutional provisions uh, for two years or so and ruled, not quite by decree, but under, with emergency powers. A lot of the senior leadership of the RSS and with the Hindu nationalist movement at that point was then were imprisoned or put under house arrest or taken out of circulation. And this young man, Narendra Modi, at that point, uh, rises up as somebody who's a very capable and competent organiser and uh, conduit of information. He does a number of different things to pass information between the BJP leadership in Gujarat and in Delhi and elsewhere in, in India. He enrolls in a political science degree at the University of Delhi by correspondence, which gives him a reason to be travelling around the country and travelling especially to Delhi to go and see the, the national leadership. He also does things like disguises himself. He makes use of his beard. Very unusual for a, a senior Hindu leader to have a beard. He's supposed to have got, grown the beard early on and then he's supposed to have been told by a Hindu monk to keep it as a kind of sign of his devotion. He's very keen on his beard. You can see it's all very carefully, neatly uh, uh, looked after. Um, and it, the beard came in useful when, in the 1970s, he used to occasionally disguise himself as a Sikh, uh, where he would not become under suspicion for being a Hindu nationalist. And again, we've got him on the right-hand side in his RSS uniform sometime in the 1970s. Came to real fame within the BJP, uh, the Bharatiya Janta Party, the, people, the Indian People's Party, Hindu National Party, Nationalist Party. Came to, to influence within the BJP and the RSS because of his capacity to organise events He's an events manager, really, in his early life. And one of the th series of events that he organised in the 1980s were yatras, and kind of ceremonial processions that have significance within Hinduism. And they turned these, took these, these, these Hindu ceremonial processions and turned them into political rallies and political events. Here you can hit, see one of the senior BJP leaders, Al Advani, standing on this, uh, this truck that has been made up to look like a kind of a, a chariot that you would get out of Hindu texts. And here is, here is Advani you know, meeting the crowd, and this is all redolent with all kinds of Hindu symbolism, as well as uh, you know, high-tech event management, which is what Modi, as I say, cut his teeth on within the RSS. Here is again presenting himself, but also presenting himself as a fashion icon. He, uh, he is supposed to have invented this half-sleeve kurta. You see him wearing here this long shirt with half-sleeves. The half-sleeves, just like, you know, business-like Westerners roll up their sleeves to show just how business-like they are. He does the same thing. It's the short sleeves to show how powerful his forearms are, 
and to, to set off his supposedly 56-inch chest, as the propaganda says, uh, and also, but also to show that he is a, a can-do kind of leader, not some sort of lazy, lazy babu politician kind of sitting around just do, in it for himself. And the tailors, the tailors that make his half-suit purses have made a lot of money out of them. Here's an example here. You can buy them on the internet if you want to. And this is the other image that appeals then to, um, to India's middle class. This is Modi, the technocrat, sitting there on a Sunday morning reading the newspaper, reading significantly the Economic Times in India. I'm not sure why the geese are in the photograph. In front of him is a, a MacBook showing how keen he is on, uh, on technology. And sitting next to him on the left-hand side, there, there are two books. They're both biographies of Barack Obama, autobiography and biography of Barack Obama. So this is a very contrived, staged image that came out before the election campaign. And again, it just goes to this point that I want to make, that, that Modi is a very acute, very clever manager of his own image and builder of his own image, but also he's now turned to become uh, a manager of India's image as well. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Now I'm going to leave this photograph up here. This is where the image, sometimes the image management slightly slips. Look at those eyes on that photograph. Those are not the eyes of a, of a benign, necessarily, leader. An extraordinary kind of picture. Poor old Obama's just sitting there blithely unaware, but Modi is looking very deliberately at the camera. Now, India has long seen itself and been seen from outside as being a, a, a righteous republic, to use the, the term that's been used in a recent book on Indian political thought. It's an exceptional state. It's not an isolationist state. It has wisdom to convey to the world. Um, this idea of India as a righteous republic was central to, to Gandhi's thinking, to Nehru's thinking, to the thinking of that uh, revolutionary generation that threw off British rule and moved India towards independence. Nehru conceived India as, as, as more than that, not just a righteous republic that could sort of stand on its own wisdom, but also as a kind of normative power in international politics. <coughs> to use the term that Ian Manners made famous when discussing the European Union uh, back in the what is it, early 1990s. Normative powers are policies that supposedly prioritise the spread of norms and values in international politics that they think should be universal, rather than just pursuing or exclusively pursuing or predominantly pursuing uh, their interests. So Manners argued that the European Union was a normative power par excellence because the Treaty on European Union commits the, the EU, not it makes, it makes the consolidation of democracy, the protection of human rights, rule of law, and so on. It, the Treaty on European Union makes them foreign policy objectives. It mandates the, the European Union to pursue those in international relations, not just to pursue its interests in international politics. So Manners develops this argument about the European Union as, as, a, as a normative power. It's a very controversial argument, a highly cited article, and a, a controversial argument that's been debated quite a lot over the last what, 10, 15, 20 years or so. But he's, he argued that the EU doesn't just mandate the spreading of certain norms and values, but it also puts in place certain mechanisms in order to do it. So how does the EU spread these norms and values? Well, through unintended contagion just looking good and spreading just by being good, uh, being yourself and simply spreading the disease, if you like, by um, strategic and declaratory communications, by making statements of the supporting particular norms and values, by institutionalisation in bilateral and multilateral treaties, by transference as conditions on trade agreements, aid agreements, development assistance, and so on. 
by diffusion by EU representatives abroad, ambassadors going and talking to NGOs or to politicians or academics uh, about the value, norms and values that ought to be institutionalised in particular societies. I was lucky enough, if lucky is the right word, to listen to the EU ambassador, one of the, the EU ambassador to India do this at a conference in, in India. And as soon as she got up and started to harangue these Indian academics about the quality of Indian democracy, the Indian academics got out their MacBooks and started sending emails to each other and looking on Facebook and various other things like this. So overt diffusion, I'm not saying it works always, but it is something which they're mandated to do and they do. Uh, or also by supporting political or rights NGOs and other kinds of organisations. So Mann has argued that the European Union not only has, it has, a, has a mandate to go out and spread these values beyond its own borders, but also has put in place the mechanisms in order to do this. And there's a number of different mechanisms. Now, post-colonial India, oddly, is analogous to the EU in certain sorts of respects. It also has a clear, and had a clear normative agenda, not just upholding the basic norms of sovereignty, self-determination, non-intervention, which are enshrined in the UN system post-1945, but also advancing agendas that were not universally agreed in post-colonial and post-war international society. So especially setting itself against colonialism uh, and for decolonization in the rest of the, uh, the world, uh, setting itself against racism, campaigning on, on against racist pol policies and polities uh, for disarmament, especially nuclear disarmament, which is something that Nehru campaigned on in the late 50s and early 60s, and which uh, others like Rajiv Gandhi proposed in 1988 for universal nuclear disarmament by 2010. So India has set itself kind of a series of normative agendas over time uh, and has tried to pursue those in a number of different ways. Now, Nehru actually, although he was faced with a polity which was um, underdone, inherited a polity that was not fully built, he did prioritise in his policy agenda some of the means by which you can spread this normative agenda, advance this normative agenda. Of course he wanted contagion, but he also gave India the means of strategic and declaratory communications. He created an all India radio network which stretches right the way across South Asia uh, and even into parts of the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And it, it, it broadcasts in multiple languages, not just in Indian languages, but in other languages across the region. Think tanks and institutes like the Indian Council on Cultural Relations were intended to further this normative agenda. He also appointed a series of, um, of academics and activists to diplomatic roles, knowing that they would then further this normative agenda rather than just simply do regular diplomatic work or pursue India's interests. People like Krishna Menon, K.M. Panikkar, uh, who was appointed to Beijing. These scholar diplomats were, were intended to, to push this activist agenda. Uh, Menon, not just... Um, advanced this activist agenda as, a, as an ambassador, but also to, he was the High Commissioner in London in the post-colonial period, but also in u making use of the United Nations and using that as a new platform to advance these normative agendas. Uh, and he used, he really was the inventor of shuttle diplomacy back in the 1950s, trying to mediate between the great powers and other states in the Suez Crisis, for example, in the Korean War as well. So. Nehru also sought formal institutionalization and informal institutionalization of these norms in a series of agreements, most notably the Panchsheel Agreement with China, uh, and then again in the non-aligned movement as it emerged after Nehru. And he worked hard on diffusing these norms, spreading these ideas and things that he stood for uh, by cultivating relationships with journalists, foreign journalists, and so on and so forth. He appeared on the cover of Time magazine, for example, much more, many more times than many other um, post-colonial leaders did.
and he was very assiduous about cultivating foreign uh, journalists when they were visiting Delhi or when he was visiting somewhere else. Of course, after Nehru, India's idealism fades, but the mechanisms for projecting normative power remain in place. I'm not somebody who studies institutions, but those of you who do in this room know full well that institutions don't just go away when they're no longer useful. They tend to stick around. So these institutions stick around, and India periodically does try and push other normative agendas. It gets behind, to some extent, the new international economic order in the 1970s, for example, even though as a practically autarkic state, it doesn't actually have the kind of stake in that order that some of the commodity exporting states did. And it, as I said before, it tried to, again, promote nuclear disarmament in the 1980s. After 1991, India's preferred normative framework starts to look, well, a bit more normal. It's not really very entrepreneurial. It's pretty conservative, very conservative on some things that, that become part of the West's normative agenda, especially democracy promotion and human rights protection. It takes a very hard line on sovereignty and non-intervention. It actually criticises even the UN Security Council sanctioned action against Iraq in 1991, and it repeatedly criticises Western humanitarian interventions as being motivated by other, uh, other things than humanitarian concerns. It holds out until the last minute at the 2005 World Summit that discusses the responsibility to protect. Uh, it was the, one of the last major states to sign up to, the, to R2P. It's resisted moves to bring it in within the non-proliferation regime, especially into the non-proliferation treaty and into the comprehensive test ban treaty. It did change in some ways. It started to join regional security organisations, which it had resisted doing throughout the, po the, the post-war period, um, such as the, the ARF, the East Asia Summit, and other things, uh, although it didn't actually really have an agenda to advance in those institutions. And that's a whole other paper, but I won't get into that. So the biggest shift, though, concerned its relationship with the norms of the global market. It starts to, to criticise them less and become a bit more open to trade and investment. The extent of the change is significant, but it can't be overstated. India still remains one of the more, more closed-off markets for both trade and investment in the world. It's one of the reasons why it survived the global financial crisis, because it simply wasn't exposed to the market in the same way as some other states were. So by the end of the last Congress government, India is still claiming it's a normative power, but actually it doesn't really have much of a normative agenda left. And in, this, in the end, it, towards the end of the last government, there was a, a report published called Non-Alignment 2.0, which was produced by a whole series of panjandrums connected to the, to the UPA government. And in that document it said, we still have a normative agenda, but essentially what we are is an example to others. A, 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 a poor democracy... Uh, not a rich democracy, and an example, therefore, of how democracy can be practiced in the rest of the world. That's a normative agenda, sort of, but, unless, but they don't sign up to a democracy promotion agenda, uh, much to the Americans' annoyance, um, and so it's, it's a kind of a limited agenda. That's a Modi. Now, I've argued I, elsewhere that Modi doesn't really have a new doctrine that's obvious yet in Indian foreign policy. And all he's done, really, is inject serious energy into existing lines of policy. But just because his actions aren't particularly original, we can't overlook the way in which Modi has started to talk about India's international politics, and international politics more broadly, in different ways. And that might signal some policy changes to come. The other thing is that Modi has set himself uh, the agenda of building and utilising India's soft power, in inverted commas, utilising India's intellectual and cultural inheritance. So what does this mean? Firstly, he started to talk much more positively about the value of democracy, not just with Western interlocutors, 
just you have to talk about something, so that's one thing they can talk about, shared democratic <coughs> values. But also in South Asia, which is something that India hasn't done that much in the past. Um, so when they visited the new Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, to New Delhi, one of the points that Modi made was that this is about you know, the embedding of democracy in Afghanistan and that that was a lesson to elsewhere in South Asia. He's talked much more about the benefits of globalization. A word, he uses the word, a concept and a word that has been long under suspicion in India. He's tried to be a norm entrepreneur in some places. He's called for an international convention on terrorism, although some sceptical commentators like me would suggest that that's just a piece of kind of international dog whistling, really, about, um, about Muslims. But most interestingly of all, he's discussed in a fairly systematic and open way the need for India to better market itself, its intellectual and cultural resources. His call at the UN, overlooked by lots of the West, but not in India, for a World Yoga Day, was one manifestation of this. Now we can chuckle, but the UN endorsed it. And there is now a World Yoga Day, thanks to Narendra Modi. Now this, you know, yoga might be a good thing for yummy mummies and hipsters, but I had to get that in there somewhere. Um, but for Modi, yoga has much greater significance as a practice of life. Uh, he's also argued that Hinduism has much to teach the world about environmentalism and about living in, in harmony with the natural world in a non-exploitative way. Now, again, we can sort of chuckle about it, but I think this is quite significant in terms of Modi's underlying thinking. And most importantly of all, Modi's pitch to South Asia about openness and connectivity, language that he uses, is partly couched in terms of the language of globalization, but is also couched in terms of the supposed cultural unity of South Asia, an India-centric unity. And this is important for reasons that I'll come on to in a minute. Now, where are these ideas coming from? Now, he's steeped in the culture and the ideas of the RSS, as a photographs illustrated. But many of the concepts that he's putting forward don't come from the RSS. They come from elsewhere. The RSS did have, the godfathers of the RSS did have coherent visions of international politics. But they rejected openness and connectivity, for one thing. And they backed the concept of self-reliance in international politics. They deeply regretted partition. And they looked forward to India being reunited back into uh, greater India, Akan Bharat. I'll give you a picture of now here there's a couple of the godfathers. I'll come back to that in a minute. There's the limited version of Akan Bharat, the idea of a, a reunited India, the dates being the, the points at which they were split away from India, but the a, uh, aspiration being that they'll come back together again. This is the limited version of Akan Bharat. Um, the unlimited version of it is this big. And as you can see, it goes quite a long way in that direction and quite a long way in that direction. There are even maps which include parts of northern Australia, on the grounds that Northern Australian Aboriginal language groups are tied in with, with, uh, with Indian language groups and ethnically, racially, linguistically, they're connected, supposedly, to, to India. Okay, so there's your maximalist Akambara idea. So here are the godfathers. So they talked about a, a, a reunited India. And, in, and uh, Bodhi doesn't talk about that in political terms, even if he does talk about it in cultural terms. They, but their agenda about international politics actually was much more radical than Modi's. So these two guys here, Gawalka and, and Savaka, these two gentlemen here um, had a number of different agendas for international politics, but what they imagined was a, a world federation that would overcome power politics. So although they were nationalists, they actually advocated a world federation, one that was going to be achieved spiritually, though, through the conquest of Western materialism through transcendental uh, methods. I don't want to go there right now. Modi's position is quite different. He welcomes globalisation. He sees it as a way of integrating South Asia. 
a way of uh, bringing about a new recognition of interlinked destinies, as he's put it. On India's wider role in the world, though, he doesn't follow these old thinkers in the RSS tradition, but instead seems to sometimes come closer to some of the American-based Hindu nationalists. There's a whole other issue here about the way in which American-based Hindu nationalists are redefining Hindu nationalism from outside the country. These thinkers, like Rajiv Maholtra, argue that India, or rather Hindustan, is the source of a uniquely insightful and virtuous intellectual tradition. And this makes India a kind of civilizational state, in the way that Zhang Weiwei, uh, the Chinese nationalist author in his book The China Wave, imagined that China was. Not, not a mere mongrel state, like the United States or Australia, uh, with no deeply rooted cultural traditions to guide it, but just a jumble of second-hand ideas and traditions gleaned from all over the world in a mess, an incoherent mess. Instead, India, like China, is a civilizational state with a deep and unbroken intellectual tradition that stretches back thousands of years. Malhotra, whose book Being Different, The Indian Challenge to Western Universalism, features a puff from Modi on the front cover, argues that the West is a deceitful, dangerous civilization of tricky religious fanatics, bent on demeaning and destroying Hinduism with faux toleration and aiming really at conversion and assimilation into the West. Only Hinduism offers a better religion, uh, not just a better religion, but also a superior ethic and political order that flows from the accept willing acceptance of, of a certain conception of Dharma. This kind of stuff is really influential in, uh, in Indian, radical Indi Hindu circles, especially in India. But Modi kind of gets close to some of this and then moves away again. Um, in particular, he doesn't buy into the kind of really quite dull and banal power political version of international politics that people like Malhotra put forward. They think that, power, that international politics is just power politics, it's a realm of war, force and fraud, you know, a Hobbesian world, uh, and that it should just be conducted along those, those rules. So if you read people like BJP <coughs> MP Taran Vijay, who's a journalist and an MP, um, he thinks that, it, that India just needs to pursue as much military force as it possibly can, and that it ought to be emulating, or that Modi ought to be emulating leaders like Vladimir Putin, who um, uh, Taran Vijay idolises tells us a little story about seeing Putin in a dinner and kind of creeping up to his table and asking for his autograph. It's all a bit unpleasant. So this kind of cod realism is now characteristic of lots of the Hindu nationalist commentary, but it isn't the view of Modi. So Modi kind of comes close to it, but then disappears away, just like he does with <coughs> particular godfathers. Instead, Modi's position is a lot closer to somebody else. This man here, Swami Vivekananda. Kananda, rather. Swami Vivekananda. He shares a name with him. We're back to Modi's narcissism again. Vivekananda's first name was Narendra Das Datta. Narendra uh, Nath Datta. So the Narendra bit appealed to Narendra Modi, obviously. When at the age of about 18, Modi disappears off into the Himalayas for two years to do something that we don't really know. He just disappears from his family, wanders off, leaves his supposedly betrothed wife and goes off into the Himalayas. The first thing he does is try to become a monk at the Ramakrishna mission founded near Kolkata by this man here in honour of his own guru, Sri Ramakrishna. He goes back there in 2013 persuaded and persuades the authorities to open the room that Vivekananda, had, uh, Vivekananda had, had worked in and he meditates alone for 25 minutes in the room and tells journalists about it afterwards. Again, image management is central. He apparently reads him every day before he goes to bed. His biographers and hagiographers, there are more hagiographers than biographers, 
claim that he's devoted to him, to, and to the idea that service to man is service to God, which is Vivekananda's um, idea. It's not surprising that Modi's ba allies and backers chose to name the BJP aligned foreign policy think tank in New Delhi, the Vivekananda International Foundation, the VIF, founded in 2009. And it used to be headed by Modi's national security advisor, Ajit Doval, the former domestic intelligence chief. The VIF, incidentally, is one of the few security think tanks, security policy think tanks in the world that has a unit that is dedicated to uh, historical and civilizational studies, as well as a commitment to the promotion of yoga in its mission statement. It is not true of the IISS, for example, or Australian Institute of International Affairs, although I might try and persuade them otherwise. It's not surprising also that when Obama visits New Delhi to attend the Republic Day um, parade, he, his diplomats, understood the importance of Vivekananda in his, uh, to, to Modi by getting a copy of the speeches that were given at the World Parliament of Religions, including Vivekananda's speech. Uh, and he gets a copy of this very rare book, and Modi gives it to, to Modi. Sorry, Obama gives it to Modi as his present. Now, he's devoted then to, to apparently, to um, Vivekananda's philosophy. He came to Hinduism through a rather odd route. He was born into a wealthy Calcutta family. He had an excellent Western education and was more acquainted by the age of 18 with Bentham, Darwin, Huxley, John Stuart Mill and Herbert Spencer than he was with the Vedas. But then he met a guru at the age of 18 and decided instead of becoming a lawyer to devote himself to Hinduism. I've got to say it's a good choice. I don't like lawyers. Gandhi comes to Hinduism, in other words, through a Western education. Gandhi came to Hinduism through theosophy, this kind of wonderful occultist, spiritualist, Western movement that took bits of Buddhism and Hinduism and other ideas together. And his, uh, his reconstruction of Hinduism is partly shaped by Western concepts of concerns and partly by a desire to justify Hinduism against its Western and Westernized critics. Now, I don't want to summarize his political thought here because I don't have time, but I want to just point out a couple of things about how he's read by Hindu nationalists like Modi. Firstly, they concentrate not so much on his, his desire for a Hindu reformation, called for this in explicit terms, but instead uh, his assertion of the equal status and validity of Hinduism against other major religions. For them, for the Hindu nationalists, his significance lies in, the, in that assertion and the search for an essential Hinduism, if there is such a thing. The East must come to the West, Vivekananda argued, not as a sycophant, but as a servant, as a guru and teacher. Let us think ourselves strong and we will be invincible. So it's a, they're reading him, in other words, as, about, as a way of injecting confidence back into India and into Hinduism. Secondly, they also highlight his insistence that Hindus should not resign themselves to fate or passivity, an accusation that was often made by Western observers of Hindus and Hinduism, especially the British, but instead that they should work and work hard for the welfare of others as well as for the welfare of their families. Modi makes this point very well in his Independence Day speech where he argues this country had a destiny. It is destined to work for the welfare of the world, it was said by Vivekananda. India is born, this Hindustan is born in order to achieve this destiny of working for the world, where upholding and building up the welfare of the world. This core idea of, uh, of his karma yoga um, is that inactivity should be avoided by all means. Activity always means resistance. It says, resist all evils, mental and physical. And when you've succeeded in resisting, then calmness will come. So this is not a passive inheritance. It has to be an active inheritance. And you can see here some of Modi's energy 
a man who gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning, spends an hour on his yoga, then he goes through his press releases, then he starts work with his aides, he doesn't go to bed until 10 o'clock at night. This is the legend, right? The claim that's made about Modi. And finally, there's the, the vision of the relationship between East and West. Although he's attacked by contemporary nationalists like Malhotra for his supposed naivety of the, about the West, he, doesn't, he thinks the West is much more benign than it actually is, according to the contemporary American Hindu nationalists. He was actually convinced, the Hindu nationalists say, that the West is morally and spiritually impoverished and in need of Eastern wisdom. The appeal of theosophy, amongst other things, was taken at the time um, as an illustration of this desperate need for Eastern wisdom. For contemporary Hindu nationalists, that realisation 100 years ago should prompt Indian governments to assiduously promote Hindu and indeed also Buddhist ideas to build India's soft power. And it's for this reason, amongst others, that the BJP's election manifesto devoted half of its discussion about foreign policy to the discussion of how it was going to sell the intellectual and cultural resources of India to the rest of the world. Okay, so like when lots of other people, I'm pretty sceptical about the ability of states to build and leverage soft power. And I've argued elsewhere that um, lots of money has been spent on public diplomacy and cultural diplomacy, but there's not actually a lot of obvious payoff from all of that. And it may be that, Indi that Modi's attempts to apply Hindu wisdom to climate change, for example, by trying to persuade everyone to become vegetarians, because that will reduce uh, carbon emissions, and his attempt to use India's Buddhist heritage to sway Chinese, Japanese and Southeast Asian public opinion in favour of India. It may well be that all of these efforts are going to fail. But at the same time, I think we have to acknowledge that normative power India did, in the past, help to shift uh, the norms of the liberal international order in the 1950s, in particular in delegitimising colonialism. So we shouldn't necessarily assume that India cannot become another normative power and change the fundamental norms as it did to some degree in the 1950s. So his early picture, apparently of Modi, it's a little bit unclear really to me as to whether or not that is him, but there he's supposed to be there in the Himalayas um, searching for the truth that he apparently found. And here we have him at a Buddhist temple in China, very deliberately attending a Buddhist temple um, and pointing out that the only civilization that China owes something to is India's civilization. That's the point of this message. It's a hard message to convey, actually, to the Chinese. You don't want to be saying in a patronizing way, <laughs> but, uh, but sort of pointing out this, this gentle idea that there is some legacy from somewhere else that can go to China is one thing that, that Modi wants to do. Anyway, I want to come back to this conclusion. Modi and his government are embarking on an attempt to shift the basis of India's normative power. Nehru based this, norm, this idea of an Indian normative power on socialism and internationalism, leavened with bits and pieces of Buddhism that he picked up, and a lot of Gandhi's Hinduism, Gandhi's quirky Hinduism. His successes were much more conservative, though socialism and third world solidarity played a part in this construction. Um, positing, and then, then we have this idea of positing India as a, as a, as a democratic example to others, to our poor non-Western states, saying that democracy can operate in these systems as well. Instead, though, we've got a, a completely different kind of vision of, of an Indian normative power, one that's grounded in a particular interpretation of Hinduism and the role that it can play in the world in terms of leavening Western moral corruption. The norms underpinning it then are mixed and they're different. He does talk more openly about the virtues of democracy than his immediate pre predecessor, but he emphasises it only in conversations with Western states and South Asian states. He doesn't talk about it with Putin. He doesn't talk about it with Xi Jinping, for obvious reasons. He favours globalisation, again, and wants openness and connectivity, 
But you have to argue that there is a cultural driver to this as well as, a, as an economic one. The cultural driver to this is realizing that undivided India in a non-political form, but instead through globalization and interconnectedness. And then he also advocates India's civilizational inheritance as a cure for some of India's diplomatic challenges, building better relations with East Asia by emphasizing joint cultural links in Buddhism and Hinduism, and solving some of the world's major problems like climate change, moral decay, religious strife, and terrorism by appealing to um, the Vedas and to the tradition in Hinduism. Importantly, Modi doesn't do this by going back and harking to RSS texts, and nor does he lapse into power political discussions. Um, Old-fashioned Hindu nationalism went with Savarkar, Gowalkar, and so on, and we looked forward to this federation. More modern Hindu nationalist governments have been quite power-political in their approach. They've basically been political realists. Modi is departing from that tradition, and that is where I think the real interest lies in, in his thinking and his approach to foreign policy. Now, whether any of this is just strategic, it's just a way of achieving his interests, it's a way of fulfilling his narcissistic vision of himself and, and so on, is open to question, of course. But I think we need to reconsider some of the old verities about Hindu nationalist-led governments in India um, if we're to really understand where Modi is heading in his foreign policy. Thank you. For more information about Griffith University's research, engagement and activity in the Asia-Pacific region, visit griffith.edu.au slash Asia.